Namaste, everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host, Kushal Mehra. Uh, today's discussion is titled In Defense of Rooted Indian Nationalism. Now, let me give you a background about why I've decided to take today's discussion. If you are a regular on the Charvak Podcast, you'll know I had conducted two podcasts previously with Jaydi Prabhu, one on nationalism at a conceptual level. Uh, on the western roots of nationalism what are the different kinds of rationalism in the west and then we had a follow up podcast on the history of hindu nationalism with jaydeep again where we had discussed what what are the different avatars of hindu nationalism obviously we we could not cover everything and uh, I, if i remember correctly it was just a couple of days ago or maybe yesterday or day before i don't remember exactly abhinav wrote a beautiful article in the hindustan times which was uh, titled in defense of rooted indian nationalism i love the article and actually abhinav and i were supposed to do some other podcast and then i called abhinav nahi nahi humko ye podcast karni hai kyunki i really loved your article so abhinav first of all uh, once again thanks for coming on the podcast thank you kushal for inviting me always a pleasure to be here so abhinav let's first i i actually want to start by asking you why did you use this very particular word where you use the words rooted indian nationalism now what do you mean exactly when you are talking about rooted indian nationalism as in how what is the differentiating factor here see the the uh, is more of an academic thing that when you talk about nationalism we normally see it from the perspective of the western world so nationalism arose first in the west there is no doubt about it nationalism uh starts uh, when these countries started getting industrialized because nationalism is a function of industrialization basically so we see nationalism from the perspective of western countries when we talk about nationalism but uh, the nationalism which grew in the non western countries especially in the countries in the global south where you have this anti imperialist struggle going on so there the nationalism is much more different and indian nationalism does not confine itself to just the uh you know the the contemporary times it basically derives its legitimacy from this belief of continuity of the civilization over millennia so it's a very rooted concept when indians say nationalism or when indian talk about nationalism they don't mean the same thing uh, what westerners say when they say nationalism so in west nationalism was more about uh built around ethnic or linguistic supremacism that we are french we are german were different from the other people you see in indian nationalism that is not the case in indian nationalism is quite the opposite okay you you are a bengali you are a tamil you are a punjabi but we are all the same people so it's quite reverse of what we understand by nationalism in the western context or in the standard academic discourse uh, which we uh, come across every day because indian academia is uh, just the uh, sidekick of the anglo saxon academia so here's the thing but what if somebody so so from what i have understood is even in western nationalism obviously there is civic nationalism there is ethnic nationalism then then even within i don't know if russia would be counted in the western anglosphere as such but in russia there is a very different uh, connotation where they go into this you know pathway of motherland so so russians actually do have the concept of a motherland so when it comes to because uh, let me point you out to uh, how you start the article so in the article you say uh, 
you know narendra modi you start with the prime minister's usage of the word indian yeah. nationalism and uh, i remember a while ago you know the the prime minister had an interview where somebody had asked him so so do you think you are a hindu nationalist and prior, the prime minister i remember clearly telling that interviewer yes uh, i mean by my uh, religious or uh, you know spiritual identity i am a hindu and i am definitely a nationalist because i believe in the sanctity of the nation state of india i mean i'm just paraphrasing what the prime minister was trying to say so in that sense i am a hindu nationalist now the beauty was i was not looking at the prime minister when this was happening i was looking at the interviewer when this was happening and the person conducting the interview was absolutely perplexed ki ye bande ne kya bol diya mujhe as if you know some uh, the prime minister had some said something so outrageous that is indigestible uh, for the person interviewing the prime minister now so abhinav in your opinion why is this so indigestible see there has to be a specific reason we know it is indigestible to a, a certain clique in india the word nationalism but why is it so well that's an interesting question i don't think nationalism was contested that much as it is now uh, i think up until 80s or the 90s the word the nationalism was never a contested word whether you are even on the left side barring if you are a communist and it's a different thing but you were on the left or the center you were also nationalist the samajwadis were also nationalist and uh, uh, the the reason that it is it has become so problematic today is because you 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 have to take into account what is happening in the western universities uh, especially in the field of social sciences and this was something which was pointed to me by uh, a marxist professor at jnu uh, prabhat patnaik professor prabhat patnaik who is the little the dawn of the marxist professors in uh, india and he said this thing see there is a very determined effort and this was almost a decade back uh, that there is a very determined effort in the western universities to delegitimize the india's anti imperialist struggle and when you are delegitimizing india's anti imperialist struggle you also have to delegitimize the internationalism so this thing is coming from the western universities and because in india we follow everything which the gora people say and this is true so <clears throat> someone was telling me yesterday that how his professor at uh, hansraj college in delhi university history professor who comes from uh, central up wears all these uh, you know uh, kada and all those things but he is com- incomplete awe of audrey toshki and his work on orange just because it's coming from some white people so uh, coming from the west so this is the intellectual hegemony exercised by the western universities in this country and all across the world not just india so it's coming from there so we are basically adopting their context their terminology their lens and their understanding of the word and applying it to our context and we have lots of indian scholars who are also doing it so you remember it's not just hinduism which is being delegitimized is also uh, so it's not just nationalism which is being delegitimized it's also hinduism and hindus as well right so we have this professor uh, in iit uh, who wrote this article if you remember in the caravan that how upper caste invented uh, hinduism so basically hinduism is a fake religion and hindus are a fake people and this is a political conspiracy a very negative construct created by certain uh, let's say people to maintain their hegemony in the society and this is what they do to the national struggle as well if, if, i don't know the problem in india is that we don't 
invest in social sciences we are not aware of the social sciences debate so we find everything very surprising but for decades and this, this is something i've been noticing for almost 15 years now since ever since i was in graduation that indian nationalism indian freedom struggle is is painted as a regressive movement is painted as a movement by uh, upper caste in this country to continue to maintain their hegemony and deny everyone else the obcs the dalits the tribals the minorities their political empowerment and their political aspirations so this is a very insidious thing which is happening its root lies in the western universities because remember they have gone completely woke right so there's lots of vandalism in the uh, in the western universities you see that in america uh, they are doing the same thing to their own war of independence so american war of independence apparently now was fought only to preserve slavery do you know that so there's this yeah. project which yeah, yeah. tries to be defense of slavery as the core motive behind the american war of independence so similarly <laughs> they they are doing uh, that in india the defense of caste system caste discrimination segregation uh, hierarchy was the main at main motive of the india's freedom struggle so they're trying to delegitimize these things because they think that these are the false consciousness you have to destroy to liberate the people so this is why it is happening and we are simply following it as like uh, we always do yeah but it's, it's so funny that uh, the moment somebody actually makes a claim like this they immediately actually delegitimize the 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 contribution of all the diverse set of people whether it's minority religions whether it's people they belong to different jatis and actually it's an insult of all those people who gave their lives for uh, you know the indian nation don't you think of course if if you look at the india's uh, anti imperialist struggle for the last 200 years you have all sections of the society participating in it take tribes for example look at the history of india every 10 12 year you will have one rebellion or the other uh, done by the tribes in one part of the country or the or another like every almost every decade you have this massive massive tribal uprisings in india in different parts of the country uh, and you are saying that well it doesn't matter you are simply you know uh, either you are whitewashing it you are airbrushing it or you are saying no no those tribals were not fighting against the british they were fighting against these hindus and these hindu settlers the hindu banias who were exploiting them perhaps yes in the sense that uh, if you look at the colonial economy so when they were feeling the brunt of the colonial expansion they were fighting against it right but it's not that their prime motive was to fight against the hindus or banias or all those people they could clearly see that is the british who were responsible for this kind of invasion or this kind of disruption in their life and they were very clear about this thing they were fighting against christian missionaries which is something often uh, airbrushed from the narrative that all the tribal rebellions were very much against the christian uh, missionary activity in their reasons and it is reflected It, it, and they tend to try to deflect it towards the hindus and the hinduism so it's a very devious academic politics which is going on and we're not paying it uh, we are not paying enough attention to it kushal and that is what worries me you see the uh, the entire identity of being an indian is being challenged now so if you say india in all the academic books you see especially in the west you don't you you don't find the word india anymore take any book any book of political science history sociology when they talking about india they don't use the word india 
they use south asia because mm. according to them india is an oppressive identity india is a hegemonic identity which is denying different people their own identity so existence of india has been criminalized in the academic world existence of indian nationalism has been demonized hinduism is now being demonized and hindus are being demonized and what are we doing nothing we don't even know what is happening so few years back if you remember there was some art exhibition in the uh, new york museum if i'm not wrong so you can google it so uh, there were paintings of hindu gods and goddesses from medieval age so they were they were uh, placed under the category of islamic art and people what? said how come you how come you are placing the the paintings on hindu gods and goddesses of the medieval india under the category of islamic art so it was an exhibition on islamic art basically so the reason was well india was being ruled by the muslim so this is all islamic art because of course hindus don't exist hinduism does not exist india anyways doesn't exist so what exists islam exists and islamic rule in medieval age exists so all the hindu paintings art art and architecture is being classified under islamic art architecture and so on this is what is happening and we just don't know what is happening around here no one is challenging just, it. it this is so funny because and it's very interesting because you mention it in a passing line in the you know article where you talk about uh, you know and despite the setback caused by muslim separatism and consequent partition it continues to champion the same values of democracy liberty diversity and equality your talk uh, uh, it here being the indian state now here's the interesting thing right partition was literally based on the fact that i mean these are not my words these are jinnah's words that hindus and muslims are two separate entities and they cannot live together i mean i did not come up with this idea jinnah did so you know take it up with uh, jinnah now it's not even jinnah it's an older idea than that Anyways. yeah i know sir sayyad and wo sab logon ne shuru kiya tha magar jinnah was the most vocal proponent of it so now the beauty here is that on one side muslim separatism talks about a separate nationhood i'm not talking about muslims in general i'm talking about the idea of muslim nationhood or muslim separatism here now on the other hand uh, it is clear that you know muslim separatists would always say the freedom struggle was not a indian freedom struggle they would always say it is a hindu nationalist freedom struggle if you remember yeah. the literature of that time right i mean and the best uh, the, you know the source for that is venkat dhulipala's book i mean it's a beautiful book because all the muslim uh, separatists are constantly accusing the congress of being hindu nationalist and the indian freedom movement is a hindu nationalist movement they use the word hindu nationalist all the time and now here you have this ideology where they're saying everything about this country's past has to be digested into islamic culture because you hate hinduism it is as if chit bhi meri pat bhi meri heads i win tails you lose i mean how the hell does and and again is this denial of nationhood to hindus again just pure unadulterated hindu phobia or hindu hatred in the academia then yeah 100% hindus are not seen as legitimate people so uh, you read any book so there was this book uh, by uh, indian of course pankaj mishra if you know so oh, yeah. it was uh, it was uh, the book was titled on the ruins of empire intellectual response to the western empire something like that so i read it long back so i don't recall it completely so he was giving basically the response to the western imperialism so in which he is he's talking about chinese response japanese islamic response when he's talking about india he's only talking about islamic response there is no hindu response 
you are completely absent you are being wiped out you know hindus don't realize that you have been completely wiped out from existence in the academic discourse and ideas have consequences kushal academic discourse has consequences you're seeing that in america you're seeing that in france this kind of wokeism is built on social science theories ironically coming from the france in the 70s and the 60s and which is now having real consequences so you have been wiped out from the existence in the academic discourse in the uh, critical work of in the critical works of the academia theoretical work so tomorrow you will have no existence right so and this is what uh, we anyways face in many countries hindus are not recognized as a religious people because you you don't have religious rights because hinduism is not recognized as a religion so you're moving towards that even in the secular countries now where they will say well hinduism is not a religion so we're not going to give you any rights equal to the christians or the muslims or the buddhists and so on and this is pure hindu phobia and the reason for hindu phobia kushal is very simple that hindus are meek weak people they are seen as such they know that hindus have no ability to harm anyone or to punish anyone so you are a open game you are a fair, you are an open hunting ground anyone can do anything to you we have seen that in oxford university of late where this girl rashmi samant first indian woman to get elected as the university president was hounded in a manner no other no other person belonging to any other community can be hounded look at the comments open racist hindu phobic bigoted comments against her you cannot do to anyone you can't even do to chinese right despite so much of bad blood between the chinese and the westerners these days but anyone anyone and everyone can do that to a hindu right so this is what is happening and we are completely sleeping kushal we are not looking into it and coming to this hindu nationalism thing see the indian nationalism was always hindu nationalism since the beginning since the beginning let's not i, I don't see any any benefit of pretending because you know we tried it for 70 years then no oh, it is a secular nationalism and what not we we thought that we will be able to get over the muslim separatism but we just we have failed we have completely failed right so we uh you see that in kashmir you see that in up you see that in bihar you see that in sharjil imam you see that in umar khalid uh who are the who are the maulanas and mullahs in the kashmir mosque they are all from up and bihar by the way in case you don't know right and the sermons given from those mosques we all know what they are so we have completely failed we thought that by pretending that uh, uh, we are not a hindu country that we are not a hindu nation by pretending that we are secular by denying the islamic extremism by denying muslim separatism we can somehow get over it we have failed so let's stop pretending indian freedom struggle was a hindu movement mostly right i'm not saying that others didn't participate 10% 20% muslim popula population participating does not mean it was a muslim movement so it was the it was the continuation of hindu resurgence which was already underway before the british conquest so by the time of 17th century and uh, at least from the 18th century you had this massive hindu resurgence going on in india was disrupted by the british and it then continued in the form of the modern freedom movement because the times changed the institutions changed so your response also changed accordingly so india's freedom struggle was always hindu movement in symbolism language origin the people who participated in it right the the uh, uh, the mobilization which happened was mostly hindu mobilization of course the other communities also mobilized i'm not saying that that no one else did but mainly it was a hindu movement and the your opponents could always see that your your opponents were were in no doubt muslim league was jinnah was absolutely right the muslim league was absolutely right 
all these Maulanas of Devband, you know, a, a section of Maulana of Devband supported uh, the uh, Congress, but a larger section supported the Pakistan movement. Let's not uh, and let's not deny that they were very clear. They were not idiots. They could see what it is, right? So, uh, but somehow we 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 think that we can delude ourselves so that we can also delude other people. But that doesn't work that way. Yeah. So uh, another interesting aspect in your article was the the bit where you talk about uh, patriotism. So again, I'll read the bit here. You say the grandiloquent talk about being a patriot and not a, uh, take, for instance, the grandiloquent talk about being a patriot and not a nationalist. Patriotism is a pre-industrial construct rooted in the patriarchal notions of blood and soil that is defense of land and kinsmen. It serves the same practical purpose as nationalism in an industrial society. But a far debate is generated to make nationalism sound regressive and in millennial slang unclued and glorify the agrarian patriarchal construct of, uh, uh, you know, of patriotism. patriotism. Now, yeah, so here's the interesting part. I always thought that patriotism was basically uh, for an average person, to be very honest here, not in the academic world, patriotism was nationalism without the craziness. No, it is not. <laughs> See, uh, patriotism is what? Simply that you love your community, you love your place you are in, and you're going to fight for it, you're going to defend it. As simple as that, right? And uh, this is a concept which is basically an agrarian concept that, uh, uh, you know, this whole idea of blood and soil, that what is the main profession of the people is agriculture. So you're working the, on the field and when enemy invades, you, you, you know, join, create a militia, join the army of your local feudal lord or the king, go and fight, defend your land and your kinsmen. Your bloodline, your patriarchal bloodline. It's not matriarchal bloodline, by the way. So it's, it's, it's a concept which is patriarchal, which is agrarian concept. And it changes when you have industrialization. So once you have industrialization, what is happening? All these local communities get broken up. What industrialization does, it breaks up the local agrarian communities. It brings people of different parts of your country or the region together in the, in the centers of... Uh, manufacturing in the centers of economic uh, economic hub and you are there and then you're forced to live together that gives rise to a common identity and a common culture it's a long drawn process right uh, it's, it's not something which can happen overnight it takes centuries to happen so that is why once you have industrialization you have rise of nationalism because when you're uprooting people from their local communities you're bringing them together in a city like london or manchester how they can relate to each other. I mean, when they were living in their villages, so they had their identity very clear. I belong to this community. I belong to this family, this village. Our local customs are clear. Our local culture is clear. But now you are thrown into London, city of London in the 18th century. What is going to happen? I mean, some something should bind you, right? And that is why you have nationalism. So nationalism arises once you have industrialization. And nationalism does the, practically the same thing what patriotism does, that it mobilizes people for the defense of the land. The difference is that your idea of your land and your people is now much bigger than before. So patriotism is a very limited concept. It's more about your local community or your city state. Well, I love the city of Venice and I'm going to fight because I have more liberty than outside the city of Venice in the medieval ages kind of a thing. But nationalism is what I'm going to fight even for a territory which is 1,000 kilometers away from me because I relate to it. 
And this is why in the 1962, when China invaded India, you had hundreds and thousands of Tamilian youths lining up to join the Indian army, despite all the Dravidian movement and Dravidian uh, uh, parties arguing in the parliament that Tamil Nadu should be made a separate country. They were actually arguing that in the parliament in the 1960s. But then the war broke out and you had hundreds and thousands of Tamil people lining up to defend the North. They, had, they would have no idea of what the North looked like, but they were fighting. That is what nationalism is. So nationalism is a much more superior concept, much more wider concept than the patriotism, which is a very limited concept. So I think this kind of fox debate, which is uh, fog debate, which is uh, generated by these people, uh, it, it came up, you know why? Because you had this uh, incidence uh, in, in JNU, that 2016, where uh, certain Kashmiri separatist groups and Maoist groups uh, uh, did that event to uh, remember the Afjal Guru, and they shouted anti-India slogans, if you remember, Bharat, Tere, Tukre, Hunge, and so on. So mm -hmm. now that problem that was a problem for a section of our intelligentsia so they came up with all these flowery words oxymorons and idiotic concepts like well i'm not a nationalist i'm a patriot or i'm not a nationalist i'm a constitutional patriot and so on so this is basically a fig leaf uh uh uh, uh let's say word play to defend the indefensible so nationalism is a superior concept than patriotism in my opinion look at india patriot a Bengali patriot will fight for Bengal. A Tamil patriot will fight for the Tamil Nadu. A Marathi patriot, his patriotism will be about city of Bombay or his village in Maharashtra. Nationalism, when everyone fights together for India, right? That's a wider concept that's bringing much more, uh, a much larger number of people together on a common platform. And one more thing which is important, I'm just remembering, uh, long back I saw this comment on a YouTube by someone uh, from UP and uh, he was uh, an Ashraf, right? So he said that it was some, some video on nationalism or something said that, well, I'm a patriot. I will defend my country. I will defend India if Pakistan attacks India. I'm a patriot. But if India attacks Pakistan, I would not allow India to destroy an Indian Muslim country. <laughs> what does patriot, that even mean? But he's not a nationalist. This is the difference out here. Yeah, but uh, I think to be very honest, Abhinav, that's not the casual persons. I, I I understand the academic definition, but my question was more about in the popular narrative. When you know we come down to the narrative of the average human being, where they've been told that honestly, that's all they think. They think patriotism is nationalism without the jingoism bit. You know, where everybody is shouting Sinathan ke Bharat Mata ki jaya kind of a thing. I think that's what people understand. And if we actually go out there and talk to people, this is what you will get. But having said that now, and again, now, now in the latter part of your, you know, article, you go on and you, you actually defend Indian nationalism. So, what you say is that far from being a tool of oppression, Indian nationalism has been a force of integration and upliftment of the masses. The mm. growth of nationalism enabled people to transcend the narrow confines of caste and community. Now, I, I personally agree with you where, uh, again, the problem with the Western lens is that they were not a multi-ethnic society. In yeah. fact, a classic case of that is how European nationalism is very different from American nationalism because America is a far more diverse society than uh, any European society is. So for uh, in America, but I get the Western world. See, the 
problem happens in the western world is the moment you say nationalist the first image that pops into their head is hitler going i try 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 they get very scared about that so uh, i think they're scared shitless about nationalism because of hitler he did such a number on them that you know they can never recover from that now in a country like india now what did you mean when you said that it is nationalism that actually uplifted people how yeah. how did nationalism play that role see india as you said it's a very diverse society very diverse country and uh, you have so many castes you have so many ethnicities you have so many languages uh, different communities different culture it's a, it's a most diverse place on earth let's let's accept it right so the moment you travel 20 15 kilometers away from your home think you will you will start noticing the difference in the culture and other thing so uh, and it, it is the rise of nationalism which then you know motivated people to do something for the other people as well so when we talk about the 16th century or 17th century india was very unequal society uh, people keep on saying that you know british came and looted us and all those things that is why we became poor but india was poor already india was india has been poor for almost 7 800 years right so uh, since the time of the uh, invasions of the turks and the mughals india has not seen real prosperity you can't just look at the gdp numbers and say well india was a great economy because of course you were such a large geographical area you will always have a large gdp provided some stability and other things so even in the times of the mughals when you're talking about when everyone say that india was so rich the per capita income of india was half of what was there in the italy and so on so let's not let's not uh, you know extend this point that we were super rich before the british came we were not maybe mughals were rich maybe their court was rich maybe they could build taj mahal but the people were not rich your condition was extremely bad there were lots of social divisions there were lots of caste caste is a big thing out here so there were lots of caste differentiation and discriminations out there and the rise of nationalism when you start saying well doesn't matter that that person belongs to another caste that person speaks another language doesn't matter that person uh, belongs to some other sampraday doesn't matter that person belongs to some religion he is my people right and then people started all this campaign of social reforms economic reforms this this whole idea of doing something for the nation which includes everyone in the country and this is a very powerful force in india it it, it played a very big underestimated we underestimate the idealism of the generation which fought the indus freedom struggle we might disagree with the gandhian mumbo jumbo but they were idealists right they actually believed they actually believed that we have to uplift the people socially economically culturally and so on so nationalism did play did play a very very powerful role in india in uniting the people so remember when the british were conquering india they conquered india using the bengal army basically the up and bihar people they were they were the soldiers in the bengal army and then they, when they had to suppress the 1857 they used punjabis they used other troops right so there was no sense of nationalism out there so everyone was fighting against each other is the nationalism which brought them together that when bhagat singh is hanged then the people in the up get mobilized or when you know azad hind force is being formed in singapore everyone is joining it when punjabis are uh, you know uh, were the main actors in the gadar movement everyone is appreciating it everyone is rising up to defend those people so this is what nationalism did in india and we should never underestimate it is absolutely critical india cannot survive without nationalism 
and this is what prime minister modi said in the parliament i think is absolutely right and he also pointed it out that nationalism in india is under unprecedented attack and we need to fight back because if you let go of nationalism india as a country will become quite unsustainable so another interesting uh, you know distinction that you draw between indian nationalism and the nationalism that is practiced in other parts of the world is the non expansionist tendency like uh, you say indian nationalism does not seek to conquer or colonize under uh, other countries instead it supported national struggles in other countries under imperialist rule emphasizing sovereignty and democracy which is in a way very real uh, very unlike the americans and their freedom and democracy where they want to give uh, everyone freedom and democracy i use it again because that's all they keep saying to everybody when they invade a country uh, now here's another interesting part and this is you know taking you back to the the deep rooted connection between hinduism and indian nationalism is because the only reason indian nationalism is not expansionist and imperialist is because hinduism is not expansionist and uh, exclusivist which is the reason because hinduism does not have this deeply obsessive convert karunga tujhe aaja mere paas aaja mere club mein mere club ka member ho ja kind of i'm not saying hinduism does not convert i'm saying hinduism does not actively seek to convert everyone in the world to their point of view rather it seems to want to assimilate the diversity and keep them within the spiritual realm and i think that hindu nature stems uh, kind of uh, passes on over to the nature of indian nationalism where indian nationalism is also we will maintain our uh, uh, sovereignty and territorial integrity if you hit us we are going to kick your butt but you know what you stay there you do your thing you are a sovereign nation so isn't that also kind of a very hindu thing uh, yeah it's is both is two things basically uh, first of all i kind of disagree that hinduism has never been a missionary religion the only question is that when did hinduism stop being a missionary religion because see uh, when you talk about hinduism so is this a problem is hinduism is not like christianity islam you have Uh, if you're talking about missionary activities, you have to talk about the different sampradayas of Hinduism, right? Because they are much more coherent in their philosophy and their uh, practices and rituals. And uh, India did not become a Hindu majority country without missionary activities of these sampradayas. Let's be very clear. So they were converting people. They were preaching people. What do you think this entire Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's movement was? it was basically conversion right it was basically propagating your beliefs so different sampradayas of india used to uh, propagate their beliefs uh, used to debate and convince other people to join their sampradayas and that this is what missionary activity in india was of course uh, it 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 no longer exists because everyone has become a mathadish and they are more concerned with the purity of blood and what not but that was not always the case if you look at the hindu history uh, but this is true that this hindu character because they were not very aggressive unlike islam and christianity you will hardly find you will hardly find the episodes of one sampraday going and killing off the other sampraday there are episodes there are certain violent episodes but not their exceptions not the norms in india so that character also rubs off to this entire thing also there's other reason which is india's nationalism grew in response to anti imperialism and you were fighting the most powerful imperialist force of the world at that time which is united king the great britain the british empire uh, they were the most powerful uh, country in the world they were the most uh, important power and you realized instinctively the people realized that you can't fight these people you can't fight the british empire without mobilizing everyone every section of the society so india 
since the beginning uh, of its nationalist movement was quite inclusive of different sections, which you don't see in the Western countries where their nationalism was growing and so on. So India, you're talking about every community, you're talking about businessmen, you're talking about Kisans, you're talking about upper caste, you're talking about Dalits, you're talking about Muslims, you're talking about Sikhs, you're talking about agrarian laborers, uh, not that much, but you were certainly talking about their upliftment and Kalyar and so on. So you tried to mobilize everyone. So you had a very inclusive character. Second thing, you realize that you can't fight British Empire and win your freedom when all other countries are enslaved by the imperialist power. So you also started supporting their national struggle, right? So it's also kind of because of the context you were placed in that you could do no other thing but this thing, right? Maybe, maybe if you if we were the first country to industrialize, I don't know what would have been the entire uh, context and situation or the character of the nationalism in India. But because we because we did that under imperial rule, so we acquired these tendencies, these characteristics, which makes it quite unique. So Indian uh, Indians uh, were supporting freedom struggle in other parts of the world, even when. India was not independent. And when India became independent, India actively supported the nationalist struggle in Africa, in Asia, and so on. And we were very clear about the sovereignty. right? So we want you to be democratic. We want you to be independent. But we also want you to be sovereign. Because we realize that so if, if other countries are not sovereign, then India can also be uh, no longer sovereign sooner or later. So we realize that thing. Just both. It's, it's basically historical context and also the Hindu character. Yeah, but I think the fundamental difference between the Hindu character and the Abrahamic character is the lack of blasphemy and apostasy, which inherently makes a humongous difference in the way we go about preaching our values to others. Yeah. Where it is one thing to go and talk about your ideas with others. I don't categorize that as proselytization. I categorize that as just promotion and marketing. Proselytization stems from a very distinct character where you're going to hell if you don't agree with my idea. I need to save you. I need to save you. And that is a uniquely Abrahamic, uh, you know, uh, Jews don't convert anymore for their own reasons. But it, that doesn't mean the Bible, the, the, the Torah and the Tanakh does not talk about it. But they have just stopped it as a, a group of people now. But the reason I say that the nature of Hinduism reflects his Indian nationalism is because of the lack of blasphemy apostasy in a very weird way which is why it does not become an actively seeking religion because it's not like uh, Hindus Hindus don't go around. See, Advaitin does not go around telling a, a, a Dvaitin that you're going to hell or something. They have their differences, but they're not going to go out, you know, talking. They have deep differences, but there, there is a difference, which is why I think that reflects in Indian nationalism too, which is a very important distinction. But now I want to go into the other idea and I'll connect it to a question also, which has been asked by a live view, uh, live view right now. So Rohan Varma has asked because I think it is about the last part of your uh, uh, article also, because you do talk about this woke ideology. So Rohan says, how do you see corporate wokery in the USA or just, uh, you know, versus India? And how does it compare against uh, academic wokeism and I'll tell you why it is very interesting and connected to our discussion because you have a particular paragraph uh, in your article where you say instead of a nation there are just different groups in silos such as blacks white males LGBTQ women and a range of ethnic categories making uh, agreement even on basic issues strenuous now 
obviously wokeism is a unique disease that has stemmed from american academia albeit that it stems from foucault derrida loyotard and all those people in europe i mean but what you see today as wokeism is a very american product which stems from kimberly crenshaw you know mixing a bit of uh, uh, you know marxism uh, in a very weird way or the or uh, you know in the 1930 school and then taking some postmodern principles and making a mishmash now there obviously they have a and they have tried to superimpose that narrative in india and which is where they hate indian nationalism is because they want to see india as different castes different linguistic groups different religious groups different skin color groups different culinary groups uh, we even have i mean imagine uh, a world where Uh, the same person who is a vegan says my veganism is good but your vegetarianism is brahmanism i have never understood that i have never understood that but they have managed to do that too so now how would you answer this question of rohan and mix it with kind of what you have also mentioned in the article well i i i agree to what you are saying kushal so uh, i don't want to disclose the uh, name of the person but there is this person who told me that he contacted an and uh, a dalit activist and academician in the western university because this person was writing an edited volume on the the dalit politics and society in the 21st century and he said that that person is now the poster boy of this wokeism woke kind of activism in the american universities so the response he got he got a mail his the mail uh, basically was about how many black authors you have for this volume how many white authors you have this volume what is the caste breakup of the authors for this volume what is the gender breakup how many trans you have uh, uh, contributing to this volume uh, this is what work is i mean so they can't see people they, as you're saying they can't just can't see people as people so you always your identity has to be the primary marker now uh, this is what wokeism is all about and they find india very fertile ground because india is a heaven if you, if you see from the other way because there's so many different identities in india it's it's a woke heaven but the problem is that the hindu identity the hindutva and nationalism is a barrier to that wokeism it literally destroys their uh, you know uh, dreams of looking india or shaping india in their mirror image so re- remember when uh, uh, modi won the a uh, gujarat chief ministership for the last time before he became the prime minister uh, christopher jaffer lot wrote an article i think in hindu or indian express back then saying that well uh, you know uh, why hindutva keeps winning in gujarat because there is no strong dalit politics in gujarat right so 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 they basically they so so they dream of having every caste doing their own thing like patidars doing this uh, hardik patel thing dalits doing other thing and they somehow can't come on a common platform so it is inconceivable for them that they can come on a common platform but then the hinduism hindutva nationalism brings them on a common platform and this is why this is the enemy number 1 for all the works in the world because they just can't get over it another point is that they try to implement that in india uh, as i was talking about the corporates indian corporates first of all thankfully as of now they don't give much uh, importance to these books they actually throw them under the bus and i think we should start a consultancy or a campaign to tell our corporates not to employ these books from the social science departments just don't if they're contributing something to the production process employ them don't constitute this diversity nonsense and uh, all uh, this different kind of cells and you know this kind of social policy uh, csr ke andar you do something no 
just corporate should not be hiring the social science graduates from the this from the JNU and even IITs these days. Please just don't do it. So we have to convince our corporates not to go the line which the Western corporates have adopted. Second point is that in India, and I was saying telling it to someone else, you know, in India, Hindutva is wokeism. <laughs> so if you think about it, they, they, they tried to when the Black Lives Matters was going on, when Antifa violence was going on, and they were toppling all the statues in America. So many people say, we should also do the same thing in India. We should also destroy the uh, symbols of oppression in India. And then suddenly the entire campaign started. Let's go and destroy Qutub Minar. Let's go and destroy Taj Mahal. Let's go and remove the name of Aurangzeb from wherever it is written. So, so then they realized, oh my God. You know, then at William Dalimper, I think he had to tweet, we should not do this thing in India. There was Hindutva will hijack it and convert it in their Islamic, Islamophobic campaign or something like that. So wokeism does not work in India because the wokeism in India, if ever, will be Hindutva wokeism. It can't be the left-wing wokeism because they lack critical mass as of now. And we have to keep it that way. We have to, uh, we, we should not allow this disease to, you know, this right. is actually so hilarious, you know, I was reminded, but uh, you know what's interesting, Abhinav, is there is a certain distinct clique inside the Indian diaspora in the West, especially in America, that is consistently using woke terminology to talk about how they are also oppressed in America, how they are the oppressed class in America. It's actually very nauseating. If you ask me, um, I, I don't know, bhai, tu kis angle se oppressed in America? But now I want to get into the last part of your article. And then I'll take a couple of questions because they are related to it. I actually want to read this bit out because it's beautiful. So you say the sanctity of the nation and territorial integrity of state should not be confused with grandiose constructs such as constitutional patriotism. A constitutional simply reflects the underlying working of the nation and demographics and not the other way around. Without state power to enforce it, it is just another book. This is starkly reflected in how the Indian constitution is weakest in reasons where Indian nationalism is weak. Another charge of nationalism versus Hindu nationalism is an old one. Before independence, the Congress was called Hindu Nationalist Party and nationalism a Hindu supremacist construct, which I spoke about earlier on. There is nothing new in these charges and the language now deployed against BJP and Indian nationalism. Now, here's the bit which is very interesting that now they, <laughs> they hate BJP so much that they are willing to disown Congress and Congress's legacy of Hindu nationalism. I mean, how far down the deep end have these people gone? On a complete self-destruct mode, Kushal. So the Congress brand of nationalism before independence was simply the subset of wider Hindu nationalism. As simple as that. Right? It, it, it is not that there was a Congress nationalism, there was a Hindu nationalism. Congress was the preeminent Hindu party uh, uh, up until the 70s and the 80s, I would say. People will disagree here, but this is the truth because Hindus were voting for Congress and Congress was always seen as the Hindu party by the other communities and by Hindus themselves. A certain section, of course, did oppose it, at least from the, after independence of the Jansang and all, they opposed the Congress party, uh, calling it anti-Hindu, but by and large, it was seen, it was the preeminent Hindu party. Uh, uh, so, uh, let's, uh, I mean, we have already talked about it, but coming to the part of the constitutional patriotism. Mm -hmm. That's what I, I wanted to focus on. You know, that, that 
that word was simply conserved that was created by uh, pratap bhanu mehta i think right he he yeah. uh, maybe he did not create it but he popularized it in his no, it's very common in the west constitutional patriotism is a very common word used in in the united states of america yeah so he popularized that in india uh, after 2016 jnu incident and it was just to defend these uh, people who were shouting anti india slogans as simple as that right maybe maybe he was not defending them directly but maybe he was trying to argue against what he saw dangerous nationalism of bjp so and constitutional patriotism is all humbug because it believes it somehow believes that people don't matter certain civic values certain constitutional values matter and they exist in some kind of vacuum so it believes that you can replace the stock of the people and the constitution will remain the same right so it says that it believes that certain values are universal and everyone would follow that so how does it matter if all the indians are killed off and chinese come and occupy india the constitutional will remain the same that is not the case right uh, you look at indian constitution you look at the pakistani constitution pakistan is india under islam do you see the same constitutional values no do you see the same social justice uh, politics out there no do you see the same religious minority rights in pakistan no they are what is india and pakistan nothing india is india pakistan is india which has been islamized right so which has become muslim so when the when the people have changed in the sense that the religion in this case the religion has changed the constitution does not remain the same the values do not remain the same so what is constitutional patriotism baba i don't understand what this thing is you cannot have patriotism towards the constitution because constitution keeps on changing the values keep on changing the Uh, the constitution has been amended so many times that it's no longer the same constitution that we had in the 1950 so uh, and uh, uh, after 200 years we will definitely have a different constitution because constitutions are created are kind of social contracts so it's only when society undergoes a deep churning or a great change then you have the constitutions being rewritten so all this thing which you keep hearing these days where we need to rewrite the constitution they don't understand how the things function indian constitution will be rewritten when you would have a great social political change in this country and i don't see that happening anytime soon the last time we had was in the freedom struggle so uh, but the point is that this is not which is permanent and it only reflects the concerns values problems issues of the population of the demographics if demographic change the constitution will also change so i don't understand what is that constitutional patriotism you can you can be patriot only for your people you can have nationalism uh, for the uh, entire india but what is constitutional patriotism by the way see, so um, i don't understand it this this stems from the deep rooted ideological premise that human beings are a blank slate so yes. they think that the human beings are a blank slate so it doesn't matter if human a is replaced by human b we will create this book and then we will insert this program into the blank slate that is the human brain which is why they always fail because human beings are a intermixing color you know enmeshment of you know they are like a, a, a bhel puri of nature and nurture and the overarching grand narrative of india no matter how much these people want to ignore it is dharmik uh, or hindutva or hinduism and which is why they don't understand that every time they try these shenanigans they they fail miserably and then they say अरे तुम लोग ही यूजलेस होने नहीं यूजलेस जनता नहीं है जनाब यूजलेस आपका आइडिया है 
क्योंकि आपका आइडिया इतना थर्ड क्लास है बट आई हैव सम ब्रिलियंट क्वेश्चंस नाउ आई हैव टू से आई एम रियली इंप्रेस बाय द क्वेश्चंस टुडे सो अभी नो लेट्स स्टार्ट विद दैट सो ससीदरन हैज टू क्वेश्चंस हियर सो ही स्टार्ट्स बाय सेइंग सो ही फर्स्ट सेज that nationalism of hindus is equated to fascism nationalism of shinto is seen as imperialism nationalism of the africans are seen as tribalism should we simply accept whatever the west says and then he follows up by a query for you abhinav you know, because he, i think he's confused so he says could you please tell me what is patriotism and what is separatism because i think what he's saying is if patriotism is localized then isn't it a kind of separatism so uh, uh, wh- what would you say that uh, to uh, to these questions well i fully agree to his first point and this is what it is so anything which is coming from the non western society is all was e- all evil and all backward and regressive and whatever the west does is all great thing and this is what you see in the history books as well some small political event in a small european country in the medieval ages is a great event in the world history whereas you look at india and china which constituted for the majority of the human population for millennia their political development is nothing is this local right is something is is something exotic oriental and so on but that should be the standard through which you should be judging the human society not what is happening in sweden or norway uh second point uh, i think uh, uh when he's saying is it not separatism in the sense that how do you differentiate patriotism and separatism mm-hmm. see as i said patriotism is a is a pre industrial society concept it's a concept of agrarian society and when you talking about separatism you are imagining or you are assuming that india already exist right so so no it it, it did not exist the india exist after industrial after the uh, let's say you are the british conquest india as a political construct republic of india we are talking about not india as a civilization so uh, the question of uh, uh, separatism does not really arise but yeah patriotism can lead to separatism if it's it, it's mixed with the regionalism and the kind of thing you see in you used to see in the northeast states now you don't see that that much the kind of uh, sentiments the uh, certain sections of left and the tmc tried to whip up in bengal you know well i am from bengal i am not from india you see that in a punjabi population outside india well we are not from india we are from punjab right hmm. so so they will fight for uh, punjabi farmers they will fight for everything happening in punjab but they will not associate themselves with india so yes there's a there's a always a danger of patriotism slipping into separatism and that is why nationalism should overpower patriotism this is my right. clear and stated position all right so agastya asks you as more of our population now speaks english and gets uh, so would they also not get, be getting influenced by the anglosphere and their ideas and how much time before a large chunk of the population in india is going to be woke or will non university folks remain rooted difficult to answer you know uh, it is true that we are part of the anglosphere the wider anglosphere so what is happening in american universities or britain will affect us disproportionately uh i think we are already seeing wokeism in india in the uh, university campuses in the elite colleges we do see it but luckily we still have lots of people who don't buy into it but university like ashoka and all they are completely gone because they're all the refuse of all these rich kids of big bureaucrats or big businessmen and so on so they have nothing else to do they simply bored they want to sound cool and do all this wokeism how much time do we have i i don't have any answer to it but uh, not enough if we don't 
do something about our education system. And this is why I have also written about Kushal that decoupling of social sciences in India and the Anglosphere is the next decolonization movement which must be started. You have to completely decouple how you look at society, anthropology, politics from how the Western world sees it. If you don't stop it, all those theories and destructive theories will keep sweeping into India and the road ahead will be very tough. The French are feeling the heat. Come on, of all the people, the French are calling it out. It is the garbage. It's the garbage which is coming from the American universities. If the French, which are so homogeneous, right? They are homogeneous society as compared to India. If they are feeling threatened and they are facing problem in India, it will be like all the fireworks if all these constructs take hold in India. So we need to push back. Unfortunately, we do not simply have the intellectual capacity to even identify the problem. So in this country, what you have, you have a committee formed by the Ministry of Culture to what you know to write the history of the 10,000 to 12,000 year of Indian culture. But I don't know what nonsense they keep doing. So uh, I don't think the government can do it. It has to be come from the individuals because the government is completely out of the uh, loop out here. They just don't know what is happening. Yes, yeah, so it's very interesting. Following up on wokeism, Rishav has asked. Uh, and he says, he starts by saying, I'm sure wokeism ka jo pandemic hai, it will never hit India because our ethos has never been my way or the highway because that's what wokeism is. It's like a very exclusivist approach and it has all those uh, weird uh, Abrahamic concepts in, embedded. Yeah. So he says, uh, or am I missing something? And it will hit India and it will destroy India. So I always like uh, optimistic people because I am one by nature. <laughs> So saying, will wokeism destroy India? Is yeah, he question? says he doesn't think uh, wokeism can destroy India because India will never accept an ideology which is very exclusivist, like my way or the highway. Yeah, 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 I agree, I agree. So, so we should, we, we should be, we should, we should can take some comfort that how India has handled all these previous version of this kind of ideology, whether it's Christianity or Islam. So we have to a great extent we were able to moderate them to some extent, right? I not say we succeeded, but we were able to do it. So I think we should uh, look at how we have tamed communism. The Indian communists are the biggest jokers in the world, right? So okay. I think the folks in India will also be the biggest jokers in the world. So I think we can take some comfort for the on the side of optimism, but they will do enough damage if we don't control them right now. Yeah, I, I and agree. The most important thing is the university campuses. Second, the corporates. You really need to go and tell the corporates that please don't buy into this wokeism. Let them bully you, let them call you out, let them trend, boycott Reliance, boycott uh, Tata, boycott this and that. Just don't buckle. They can't do anything beyond a point. So, you know, I'm going to twist this question slightly asked by Rahul. So his question was, can Chinese nationalism survive beyond the CCP? But I'm actually going to twist it a little and I'm going to add my own little masala on top where I'm going to be like, not only is it going, not going to survive beyond CCP, how do you parallel Chinese nationalism and Indian Hindu nationalism? Oh, very interesting. Uh, don't think I can really uh, answer that completely. But, uh, you know, the, the Chinese case... I doubt that they are nationalist as such, you know, so because the, I, the China is basically a system of legalism. So this is a, a thought which came up around 2200, 2400 time period that iron is when the iron, uh, iron is uh, 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 became uh, quite widespread. So you have this idea 
which is basically legalism and which says that absolute authority of the state and complete uh, uh, you know compliance with the law and you just can't question the state and china has always been a legalist state so they might be having the outer cover like buddhism confucius thought or communism and so on but deep down the core of china is legalism so they're not even nationalistic in that sense they are they have a very uh, strong sense of uh, ethnic identity and legalism so that is what it's there now whether they will collide 100% hindu nationalism and han imperialism will collide let's let's not pretend that they will not maybe uh, good sense will prevail maybe something will change in the future maybe they will say you know let's not do it but they are on a collision course there's not i mean i don't see any other way out of it uh, the only thing is that india should join proactively the western camp military camp and try to contain china we actually need a containment strategy right like we used against the ussr we have to do the same thing with china always much much more difficult because china is the part of the entire global economic system unlike ussr so i don't know how it is going to play out still i can't really answer but i think yeah collision is a almost given so uh, i i just have one last question and then we can wrap it up uh, you know uh, because we've already touched the hour mark now here's my thought up you know and bear me out uh look i get the value of nationalism as you have explained it but like every idea nationalism can also uh, when it comes to uh, in even in uh, how it plays out in india it can also have a dark side to it where sometimes you see excesses under the name of nationalism where you know there are mob lynchings done I- i'm not saying it's done very vociferously please don't get me wrong but i'm just trying to you know put um uh, a thought out there uh how do we sh- make sure that we don't suffer from these excesses of nationalism because you know you end the article and you have said it in today's podcast also that we need to strongly reassert our nationalism now what worries me is every time we reassert nationalism it kind of scares me because look i i i even tweeted about this, this is a class- classic conundrum in my brain because i am i am a deep rooted supporter of democracy uh while i support democracy i support freedom i also understand that the fundamental premise the a priori assumption working around a democracy is that you can only remain a democracy when you have territorial integrity and this is where separatism in india becomes a huge problem so where do we draw that line of you know where our nationalism does not become this crazy montage of oh i'll purge you i'll purge you i'll purge you i don't think it has ever happened right if it, it did not happen during the partition if it did not happen during the 71 war if it did not happen during the kashmir uh, ethnic cleansing i don't think that is going to happen but of course you are asking a hypothetical question so of course there's a danger of any ideology becoming extremist and anything in extreme is bad right even if you talk about religious observance right so if if you take that to extreme that becomes very very problematic for everyone so uh, uh if you go to the extreme then you can say that anything is bad right so the entire even your democracy is bad at the extreme even your uh, liberty the idea of justice will be bad at the extreme right so we are seeing that this isis guy this person from india who went to join join syria then he came back he was in the jail for 6 year he has been released today because just say let's do justice to him i think that is taking justice too far and their justice becomes dangerous problematic for me because we never know what this person is going to do tomorrow 
right? Either he should have been handed over to the Syria, let them decide his fate because he committed crime in Syria, not in India. So let the Syrians decide this person's fate. So, uh, <clears throat> but you are absolutely right that state is very important and Hindus uh, just don't understand the state. I, I, I fail to understand why they are so anti-state. State is the greatest thing in the world, right? It is the most powerful institution in the world. See, one, one thing which nationalism brings to table is that nationalism can mobilize or enable the mobilization of the society down to the lowest rung for any goal, whether it's war or it's peacetime construction. So nationalism does that, but it also needs a state because states is the one which is going to enforce it in the sense that it is going to make sure that democracy is enforced. Democracy is also enforced and democracy cannot exist without nationalism. As simple as that. You cannot bring different people who have different ideas, who have different identities, who, who have different worldviews. You can't put them together and say, let's have democracy. They will fight a civil war and go their separate way. So the idea of nationalism keeps you together. Okay, you are BJP wala, you are Congress wala, you are this extremely obnoxious party, Ahmadi party wala. But your nationalism is that we are Indian, that you know, that somehow allows you to coexist and cooperate in a democratic setup. And this is why I said that uh, uh, constitution is just another book without the coercive power of the state. Constitution requires coercion. Without the coercive power of the state telling you do this or you're going to jail, no one will follow the constitution. No one follows ideals, principles, rules and regulations because they are you know, saintly people. And as I said that internationalism is weak. So the constitution will also be weak. So if you look at the Kashmir, uh, the internationalism is quite weak in Kashmir. So you look at, there were no uh, constitutional provisions, no ideas of constitutions which were applicable there before the abrogation of Article 370. The Dalits had no right. There was no reservations. There was no social justice for tribals. There was no right of the women. There was no minority rights in Jammu and Kashmir. So wherever the internationalism is weak, your constitution is also weak. So this whole, you know, jargon, this whole misleading debate of nationalism versus patriotism, constitutional patriotism versus nationalism is all is all humbug. It, they're all together. They cannot exist. One cannot exist without the other. This is my understanding. So, okay, then I'll have to ask a follow up because it kind of fits in well. So, uh, so you made a point that, you know, the Hindus don't realize the value of most things uh, like the state or even previously you had said Hindus don't even have academic rigor in the sense that they don't even go on and, you know, try and define many things like there is no, you know, academic discourse around what is Hindu nationalism, how it is separate, how one is separate from the other. So in, in a very weird way, you know, somebody had asked this question. Do you think our institutions suffer from mediocrity because of their an inherent nepotism in them? They suffer from a couple of things. One is that uh, the human resource in India is so bad. Uh, we are not a very rich society. We do, we do not have uh, very high education. We do not have that kind of refinement because we are a poor society. Let's accept it, right? So India uh, is a very poor country. If you go just step outside your home and you see the poverty in India even today. So we don't have that kind of investment in the human resources. Second thing is that we never invest in the institutions, by the way. All of our, look at, forget everything, look at our universities. They're completely underfunded. There's no fund available. So if you're in JNU and you, suppose you're doing PhD from School of International Studies and you are working on Russia, right? Ideally, what you should be doing, the university should be funding you to go and stay in Russia for one or two years and do your research there. And you know, what do they get? 
they get one uh, trip to Russia in that sense if they want to go to Russia. Uh, uh, for that, you have to apply to ICCSSR, lots of paperwork, lots of bureaucratic work. The amount of money you will get will be hardly, hardly, hardly enough for one week of stay in Russia because half of it will go in your airfare and so on. Now that is Russia. If you want to go to Germany, UK, the costs are much more higher. So what research will you produce, Baba? Your institutions are so underfunded. The 18, uh, the 18 colleges in Delhi today, uh, which are fully funded by the Delhi government, the faculty has not been given the salary for the last five months because Ahmadi party is blocking the salary. Why? Because they want to appoint their own governing body members so they can control the college's recruitment and all those things. But the, the colleges are resisting. They say we are autonomous colleges. But so the, the app government has dropped the salary. So where is the funding available in the institutions that you accept, expect the uh, quality and outcome? When the pandemic happened, I can tell you about the Delhi University, right, which is one of the best universities in this country. And I'm talking about the top colleges. We were given no fund, Kushal. No one was given any fund to buy digital pads, to buy good microphone, nothing, no support from the institution, zero. It was simply said, we're not going to fund anything. Now, how can you, now maybe I can buy those things. So I bought everything from my own money, the display pad, because you have to write it. I teach economics, so you have to write all these equations and graphs. You can't do without it. Many people could not. Many people come from poor, they are professors, but they are they have so much of liability. They have their kids, they have their parents, their families. They cannot afford that 20, 30,000 extra expenditure out of the blue. They didn't. So you are expecting uh, outcome, efficiency, merit without investing. And that is a big problem. Then third problem, nepotism. Yeah, India is a highly bhai-bhaji-jawad kind of society and it undermines all the institutions. And that bhai-bhaji-jawad then gets mixed with the casteism. So the caste lobbies undermine every institution in this country. Each and every institution is undermined because of the caste lobbies. Hamari caste It happens top to down, right? And especially the caste, which are much more dominant in the institutions, they are more responsible for it. And you see it every day. People might say, you know, it's not that uh, it's not that you know this is an exception. This is the characteristic of the caste itself. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate reality of We are inconsistent with modern institutions. Yeah, it's it, and that is why we don't generate excellence in this society. I agree with you. It's just we don't have it in us. Hopefully, in the next couple of decades, we might change. Anyways, I think it's time to wrap things up. Abhinav, uh, it was as always an absolute pleasure to talk to you uh, once again. Thanks for writing an amazing article and thanks for coming to the podcast and uh, chatting with me. Thank you, Kushal, and uh, thank you for inviting me and thank you, audience, for listening to me. I hope I didn't bore you, but thank you. Hope to see you again. All right, guys, time to wrap this podcast up. Uh, before I wrap things up, I will recommend all of you to read the description of the podcast, whether you're watching this uh, on YouTube or you're going to be listening to the audio version on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple, whatever, you know. So you please go and subscribe to Avinav's YouTube channel. Uh, uh, and uh, Avinav is also on Patreon. So you can go and support Avinav uh, on Patreon or on YouTube, whichever way you feel like. You can also, play, I would also request you to please support uh, my podcast by you know subscribing to the channel liking the video leave a comment over there or you can become a member on the youtube channel or you can support the charvak podcast on patreon or you can you know support the podcast by sending direct donations to the upi id which is kushal mehra at icici i'll be coming up with a new t-shirt very soon this month you know it's a uh, so 
you can support uh, me by buying the charvak podcast merch at kushalmehra.com slash shop i'll wrap things up for the day i'll see you guys again very soon i think either tomorrow or day after i have another podcast lined up until then namaste take care goodbye see you next time